The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The suffering that I was going through, I know this as a father, it's even harder on those that are watching you essentially kill yourself. It's even harder on those that continue to come back to you and offer you love time and time again, and you reject it and seemingly consciously choose a drink or a drug over them. My guest on this week's Mad World has had to carry the huge weight of grief. As a child, he lost his mother and sister, and as an adult, his beloved older brother, while also dealing with addiction. It would be a difficult journey for many of us, but when you add in the fact that his family is very much in the spotlight, his father is the President of the United States, no less, it becomes even more remarkable that he's willing to talk so openly about those battles. His memoir, Beautiful Things, is an unflinching account of that time in his life. And as someone who has had to navigate addiction myself, I just knew that speaking to him would help so many of you. Please welcome to Mad World, Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, thank you so much for coming on Mad World. It's fantastic to have you from, where are you, L.A.? Yes, L.A., L.A. Okay. Sunny L.A. Sunny L.A. I'm in sunny Cornwall, which is, it's not warm. (laughs) So listen, the first question I ask every guest on Mad World, from Prince Harry through to nurses to everyone, is how are you really right now? Because we ask that question so often and people just go, I'm fine. But how are you really? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually doing really, really well. I have a, I feel like a, a, a new lease on life that I could have only dreamed of before. And I'm, uh, more than anything, I, I cheated. I want to let you know, I cheated and I listened to your interview with Bex King. Okay. I have to buy his, his book, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm grateful. Um, an enormous amount of gratitude. I wake up every morning in my recovery and I have a practice in which I, I literally go through in my mind everything that I have to be grateful for. And that way it kind of sets the table for the day, which uh, it throws things at you, um, as you, you know, and everyone knows, um, normal life stuff, and then some extraordinary life stuff that, uh, that continues to happen, whether you're um, in recovery or not. But today I'm incredibly grateful for my family and my friends. I'm grateful for my health. And most of all, I'm grateful to be sober and grateful to be here with you. <laughs> I am honestly, I, I, this book, I pre-ordered it yep. and it arrived and I sat down and read it and I am grateful. I, I the, my feeling reading it as someone, you know, myself, I'm in recovery from alcoholism and addiction. And my feeling reading it was like, I couldn't believe that, you know, when you see memoirs, often they're not, you know, that they, they, they gloss over the kind of the honesty, the, And reading it, I was like, I cannot believe that the son of the president of the United States of America has written a book and he he's told it as it is like you have gone into the the seedy, the dark, the bit in the book where you talk about. I mean, I'm going straight into this now, but where you talk about waiting for a drug dealer, you know, and the and the and the and the relationship there, where you are completely in the back pocket of this person, and I was reading it, and I had this, you know, the whole way through, I was I was just remembering the times I'd stood on the side of a road for hours, you know, yeah. waiting for someone to turn up, and it didn't matter. 
it, like nothing else mattered until I got the drugs. And yeah. but I what I felt reading it was like, how amazing is it that you have written this book? Because the stigma attached to addiction is still so huge. And I, I just wanted to thank you and let you know how grateful I am that you've written it. I can't tell you how much that means to me. Uh, and I wrote it for, I, and I, I don't mean this facetiously, I, I wrote it for for you, for those people that could identify immediately with that vivid detail that I provide in the book about what it's like um, to be mired in that um, awful space of addiction. And most of all, I wrote it for people just to let them know that they're not alone because I don't know what your experience is, but I, but I, I would guess it's similar to mine, is that once you start talking openly about your struggles, um, and it's not just addiction, but addiction and grief and trauma and loss and, um, and all of the things that, that come along with it, you, you realize very quickly that you're not unique in any way. I know that there's many, many, many people that will read my book in, in some part of it, see an experience of their own. And I think right now, in particular, with the world still um, suffering and, and through this pandemic, and not just the, the, uh, the virus itself and the havoc that it's wreaked on communities and uh, whole nations, but the loneliness that comes along with it, the sense of isolation the amount that people have turned to drugs and alcohol mm -hmm. um, and the epidemic that's occurring here, at least in the United States, as it uh, relates to addiction. Now, I want to let them know that they're not alone and that even the son of the, of the president of the United States has gone through some of the things that they may be going through right now. Because the thing that I think trapped me in my addiction was this idea that no one could possibly understand me. Mm -hmm. No one could possibly have gone through what I've gone through. The degradation, the, the feeling of shame and guilt, the feeling of just abject loneliness um, that you feel in addiction. And you think, who? I don't have anybody to talk to. I, no one could possibly understand me. And that's one of the reasons why I was uh, so intent on writing a book that told it all, as, as raw as uh, the book turned out to be. You mentioned that thing of the loneliness and the shame cycle, yeah. you know, the shame that keeps us in addiction. And I was thinking about that reading it because it was like, it's not a relief to know someone else has gone through this stuff, right? But there's a kind of um, a sense of, oh, I'm not special and different. Yeah. You know, I'm not the worst person yeah. in the world. And I remember, I remember when I landed in rehab about four, nearly four years ago, I remember thinking I was the shame that I, you know, I had a four-year-old daughter and... I thought I was the worst human in the world. Like, who goes to these dark places, yeah. you know? Like, who ends up in these seedy places? The seediness is the thing that people don't talk about, really. And you've really gone there. And I remember rocking up in rehab, and the first person I met was another mum who lived a mile away from me and had a kid the same age as me. And I was like, whoa, you were there all along. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's that sort of relief. But, you, you know, you touch there on your story is... You know, Hunter, you've you've been through a lot. So you could take out the fact that your father was vice president and is now president. You could take out the addiction. But, you know, I, I want to, and I know this is difficult, and I appreciate talking over this stuff can't be easy. But, you know, when you were two years old, 
you survived a car crash that killed your mother and sister. And the bond, you know, this book for me is like, it's a love letter to Bo, your brother. Yeah. I was going to say your big brother, but you're like Irish twins, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Year and a day, year and a day. And I just wanted you to... That first memory that you talk about in the book of waking up in hospital and Bo is mouthing to you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that's your origin story, you know? And the bond between you. And then, of course, tragically, he died. Yeah. And... I just, I just, you know, I wish I wasn't thousands of miles away from you yeah. and I wish there wasn't a pandemic on and I could like yeah. hug you. Well, I do too. Thank you. Thank you. It, it, uh, it is a love story. Um, and that's what the, um, the book is all about is the, the redemptive power of, of that loving embrace. And in my case, I feel that it was, uh, extraordinary because I believe that the bond between my brother and my whole family is an extraordinary bond. Not fully born out of the loss of my mother and my sister in that accident, but that's a big part of it. And, you know, the thing about my story, again, just like my story of addiction, is that it is the universal story, in my opinion. I think that there's only one thing that... um, human beings are guaranteed in life. And that's pain. Mm. It's the only guarantee is that you will suffer from loss. You'll, you'll have your own struggles. And that pain and what we do with it is the real question of how our, our, our lives will unfold. And, you know, the thing about that loss for me, of my mother and my sister, is so wrapped up in the love that came after. You know, my Aunt Valerie, my Uncle Jim, my Uncle Frankie, I mean, they literally all moved into our house. And I saw my, grand- my grandparents every day. Who gets to do that? I feel so blessed. Mm-hmm. My dad commuted to work two hours there and two hours back every day so that he could be there to put us to bed and be there to wake us up in the morning. We had a rule with Bo and I is that we could go with my dad anywhere at any time. All we had to do was ask. Mm -hmm. And we did. And that's the thing about that trauma that I was always afraid to even acknowledge that it was anything other than the love that came after. And not until um, recently, as I talk about in the book, did I start to get a better sense of how trauma works. And how it at least plays out in my story of uh, addiction and recovery now, more, more than anything in the recovery part. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give an excuse for, for us or for me for uh, any bad behavior or any of the things that, um, uh, that I feel appropriately you know, guilt over um, in, in my addiction. But it certainly gives me an idea of what I need to acknowledge in myself in order to get better. Does that make sense? It totally <laughs> makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Like yeah. we yeah. have to process yeah. the pain to move on from it. Yeah. You could only focus on the love bit and not, yeah. not the actual pain. Yeah. And that's a lucky thing. And I, and I guess the thing is, is that what you say is that you have to at least acknowledge the pain in order to be able to understand what you're reacting to. And so one of the things about drugs, and I don't know your experience with them. I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but what's the thing that you're most asked by non-addicts in is why? 
Why are yeah, you doing yeah, this yeah. to yourself? What yeah, the hell yeah, are you yeah. doing this for? Yeah. And I have a really easy answer, a really simple answer. It's not easy, but it's a simple answer. It's not easy to hear. Is because they work. Mm-hmm. They work. The fact of the matter is, is my brain figured out faster than uh, than a non-addict's brain of the easiest way to erase that pain. And, you know, the drink was always the fastest way until... I literally could not drink enough. My body couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't drink more than a quart of vodka a day and I still felt the pain and I, and I turned to something else alongside of uh, the drinking that I was doing. And it, they work until they don't, yes. right? <laughs> they work until they become your greatest enemy and you chase after that uh, solution. And literally, physio- physiologically and chemically, your brain is saying, this is what I need. Mm-hmm. This is what I need not only to stay alive, but this is what I need in order not to feel the, the pain that we are trying to avoid. And if you don't know exactly what that pain is, then I, I think it's, you know, your brain is always going to turn to the easiest answer that it knows. It's kind of the nature of it. There's a passage in the book where you're recalling the process of getting the crack and yeah. then yeah. and, and, and putting it in the pipe and all of that. And yeah. you you say, I've got to stop because it's like the euphoric recall even now. Yeah. And I, I remember because I, I wrote a book about getting sober and um and I remember writing this passage about the my hopefully last night of using and drinking. Yeah. And I was, you know, I wrote the process of getting the coke and chopping it out. And I as I was writing it, I was like, that's I want that right now. Yeah. You know, despite knowing all the pain that I had caused, yeah. not just myself, but people around me, I was like, get it to me now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's mad. It's mad. This way, is insanity. It is. And by the way, that's what it is. <laughs> it, it, it's exactly that. And, you know, you know, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And you do it constantly as an addict. Mm-hmm. And. But the thing that it, so I saw this study, which is really interesting, and I got to f- find it because hopefully I didn't just make it up out of whole cloth. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a truism, at least for me, is that they did a study to show that crack addicts, um, that the pinnacle of their high came literally the, the milliseconds before they actually ingested the, the smoke to cause the chemical reaction to create the euphoria. Mm. And it came right before any chemical was introduced into their bloodstream. That, to me, is an amazing, amazing revelation about how the brain actually works. And that calling that it does, that seeking of relief, is so powerful Mm. that unless you really are able to... Completely excise those triggers in your life, which, by the way, how do you excise the trigger of alcohol, of seeing, you know, I mean, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. Hopefully it's easier to do with, uh, with crack cocaine. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't find myself in, in, uh, in social crack smoking anymore, but I, you know, I'll tell you what, I mean, you, you walk out on the street in Venice, California, and it's an, it's an open air marijuana fest. Luckily that never, never worked for me. But my point, I guess, is, is that, I think that one of the smartest things I ever heard anyone say in a meeting was uh, getting sober is easy. All you have to do is change everything. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that when it's worked for me, that's the path that I've been on is recognizing that I have to be constantly aware of those things that, you know, just get me even just a little bit off the beam. 
Because once you just, you know, steer just a degree in the wrong direction, it may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. But a month from now, you'll find that uh, you've lost your way. It's incremental. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize that this was, you know, you first got sober in your 20s. 30, Is that right? I, uh, well, 30, I was 33. And um, it was 2003. I got sober. And I stayed sober for, for many years. And, you know, I, I was uh, really involved in it. And, made use of 12-step programs that gave me a new, that gave me a new life that, uh, again, I made those kind of incremental decisions that uh, led to me being on an airplane uh, when I was about just about seven years sober. And, you know, the flight attendant came around and asked if I wanted a drink, and I hadn't had one in about seven years. And without thinking, I said, sure, I'll have a Bloody Mary, which, uh, you know, led down a... a, a pretty uh, deep rabbit hole after that. I mean, that led you basically, you know, I, someone said to me the other day that they know they have another drink in them. They know they have another drink in them, but they don't know if they have another recovery in them. And that's what keeps them in on a daily basis. But, you know, reading your book, it was really like, it is always so close, isn't it? Like, it's something you have to work on, you know, it's like what kept me sober yesterday is not going to keep me sober tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. And I know that um, people that have been in uh, recovery circles will get this immediately. But I, I don't know how many stories I've told over the, the, the decades in which I've been engaged in recovery, uh, sometimes to great success and sometimes obviously not, um, about, you know, the person that was 22 years sober that went out person that was, um, you know, 10 years sober, 15, 30 years sober that, uh, that went out and, and never came back. Mm. And, you know, th- that's the other thing, right, about us is that you have to have a healthy fear of what's waiting for you on the other side of a drink. But you can't live in that fear. No. You can't be consumed by it. You can't let it, uh, you know, limit your aspirations to do other things that are not only just important to you, but in service to other people. You have to, you know, step back out into the world. But what I have done is I've tried, I'm only, I'm only about two years sober right now. Well, fantastic. Right now. Yeah. And, um, but I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but I put up a lot of guardrails. I have a healthy fear. I have a, a really healthy fear. And, uh, there's been a, a, you know, a lot of people working around the clock to, uh, to make my life as miserable as possible to hopefully, I think in their idea that I won't succeed in my recovery. But uh, today I, I know that I will today. You know, I, two years is fantastic. And um, there's a couple of passages I wanted to read because you talk, you know, this book will speak to anyone who has a family member who has struggled with addiction. And it's the, it's, it's the sort of the pain of having to live with someone with addiction. And you write about your father and you say there was something singular that the three of you, you, Bo and him, shared. As yeah. a consequence, he never allowed me to fade away, never let me escape, no matter how often during the next three and a half years I tried. There were times when his persistence infuriated me. I'd attempt to fade to black through alcoholism or drug addiction. And then there he was, barging in again with his lantern, shining a light, disrupting my plans to disappear. And you said that disappearing was the most profound portrayal of the love that existed between you. It's what you tried instead of suicide. That really kind of got me. And I, you know, I also had this thought that 
just as an addict, the whole of my active addiction was, when am I going to be found out? When am I going to be found out? When is the game up? You know, it was the running away, the running away. And I thought how much that must have been amplified, given that you're in active addiction while your father is, you know, vice president. And can you just talk through to me what that felt like, but also what it, you know, what it's like to have, you know, him sort of unconditionally stand by you? I hope that, that, uh, when people read this book, this is as, as much as a love letter to my to my brother and to my dad. It's a love letter to my daughters who never let me completely disappear into that abyss that I so desperately thought was the answer. And I, I have this analogy that this whole idea that you got to let an addict hit bottom. The ones that I know have hit bottom are dead mm-hmm. or they're in prison. And... When you're at that middle of the tunnel and there's no light in front of you and no light behind you, I know that unless somebody took the really difficult journey to go into that tunnel with a light to bring you out, I never would have found my way out. Never. Mm -hmm. And my dad was that, my mom, my sister, my, my uncle Jimmy, my aunt Val. And to a varying degrees, every single person in, in my family. And ultimately, what it allowed me to do was when I was presented with Melissa. Your wife. My, my wife. In, in the most incredible, miraculous way, of, I, I was able to, to see in a familiar soul in a, in a stranger's body all that had been being offered to me my whole life, and particularly in my darkest times, which was the love of my brother, the love of my father, the love of my three girls, and uh, and all the people that cared about me. And I saw that unconditional love. Yeah. And it's so hard for people. I will tell you this, is that the suffering that I was going through, I know this as a father. I know this as a brother. I know this as a friend. It's even harder on those that are watching you essentially kill yourself. Mm-hmm. It's even harder on those that continue to come back to you and offer you love time and time again, and you reject it and, and seemingly consciously choose a drink or a drug over them. And they can't understand it, and I understand how they can't understand it. It's infuriating and frustrating, and the fact that they kept coming back and never gave up is the reason that why I'm here right now. I know that for certain. Mm. And you say that, that you know, and you, you, you nail it when you say that the, the one thing that is stronger than your love for your family is addiction. And I, that's really hard for people that aren't addicts to understand, you know. Like I remember thinking, why I've got this beautiful daughter and this lovely husband, why am I still behaving like this? Yeah. Well, because I'm an addict, that's why, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's, but it, yeah. it's frightening. And by the way, it's not only, it, it, don't you also, even as an addict, and even with the understanding that, and even with the, your experience in recovery and in a program or rebuild or 30 days education that you got on it, I know I'd still sit here and go, why? What the hell is, I mean, how could that possibly be stronger? Mm. I don't understand it. And what we often do then is we turn what is a, a an appropriate level of guilt into shame. Mm-hmm. Is that, oh my God, I'm a bad person. And then it just literally drives us down that, that hole again. And that shame brings us back to our 
our deepest pains and we find ourselves in there and our brain screams out, I have an answer. I have an answer. And if you're not protected in that moment, I know from experience, if you're not protected in that moment, if you're not surrounded yourself with, a, with as many barriers as possible to re-entry into addiction, that uh, you, you're going to find yourself in an even greater pain than the one you feel. There's a couple of, I mean, I've got so many questions, but we've got limited time. But you, when you were very early in your recovery this time, you know, you were literally being used by Donald Trump as a campaign against your father. You know, like yeah. <laughs> they were like T-shirts. Yeah. Where's Hunter? You know, like, yeah. and, and there's a bit in the book where you're like, this would be a great reason to pick up a fucking drink. Sorry, pardon my French. No, you know, it's all right. But you don't. Yeah. Actually... You know, that wasn't their plan, but it became your superpower to turn the negativity yes. into something, you know, it was your armor, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it really was. It had the exact opposite effect of what they intended. I think what they intended is that they know that there was nothing more important to my dad, not even uh, the campaign. There was nothing more important to him than his family, you know, and me. I know that, you know, we reveal that Hunter Biden's an addict. I am an addict. I did have a drug problem. And I found once I took that away from them, and once I kind of lived in the uh, uh, the light of my truth, that there's nothing else that could, that could hurt me. Nothing could break the armor of the love, the unconditional love of my family. And it had the exact opposite effect of what they thought that it would have. And, you know, I think, remember there's that one moment when my dad is uh, the former president turns to him in a, in a debate and, you know, has this ad hominem attack on me about my addiction. And, and uh, my dad turned to the camera and said, you know, my son suffers from uh, an addiction. He's in recovery. I'm proud of him. We're all proud of him, you know. And I, I don't know how many people, you know, reached out to me since that moment and said, God, he, he spoke right to me. Mm. Because I don't know anyone that doesn't have someone that they love or they themselves haven't had this same struggle, the same struggle that is not the, the entire definition of who I am, but it's certainly one of the things uh, that I want to continue to talk about because I think it's, uh, you know, what, what's the end goal here is it hopefully to be of service to other people. And I want to be of service to other people by letting them know that they're not alone and, uh, mm -hmm. So anyway, <laughs> it was comical at times. But the other thing is, though, too, is that it became so over-the-top comical that I'm able to, to laugh at it um, now. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's like yeah, they're cartoon characters of themselves. Well, I mean, just the difference, you know, to, I think today's your father's 100, 100 days in, in mm -hmm. the White House, and I'm like, oh, it without the incessant tweeting of trump you know yeah. it's like listen i yeah. i live in england yeah. i'm not I, I i i'm so proud of him for that yeah he must be really proud of you he is and i can say that without um with total certainty because he tells me it every day and uh you know somebody um I talk to my dad every day, but I always have talked to my dad every day, except the times in which I write about in the book where I assiduously tried to avoid his calls and his incessant text messages 
when he couldn't get me on the phone. But, you know, I talk to my three daughters every day. And the reason is, is that it's not, um, somebody wrote that like, oh my God, what a burden on his father. (laughs) You know, my dad doesn't call me. He calls me for himself. He doesn't call me for Mm -hmm. him. (laughs) Same way I call my daughters. That's for me. (laughs) That's for me. And, um, and so I know that he is proud of me because he tells me all the time. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing in and of itself. And that's the thing about the, that's the title of the book. It comes from my brother when he was sick and uh, in his last days. We would sit and he, he began to lose his, his capacity for speech uh, because of the brain tumor. But he, he would have kind of little code words. Um, and we didn't even need words most of the time. But one of the things that he would say, beautiful things, beautiful things. And what I realized um, when I started to write this book is my brother had given me the key to get out of the prison of my own making uh, before he died, which was focus on the beautiful things in front of you. It was the beautiful thing that I saw in Melissa, and not just her physical beauty, but the beauty that she offered me, that unconditional love that had been in front of me all the time. And that's when you asked me in the beginning is, how are you doing today? I'm living in the beautiful things and all this other stuff that's, that uh, kind of swirls around is, uh, it's just stuff that swirls around. Mm-hmm. And I love that when, you know, you meet Melissa and you say to her, are you on a date? And you say, I'm a, by the way, I'm a crack addict. Yeah. And she said something like, <laughs> Not anymore. That's going to stop. And she takes you home and she detoxes you. Yeah. And and, like that's book two. (laughs) Book two, you know, that's where the book ends. But the the one thing that uh, I really do feel almost a um, an obligation to speak about or write about in the future is where the real hard work begins. Mm -hmm. I got incredibly lucky and I I grabbed a hold of that that in that instant, in that moment, in that chance of, of a life raft, and more than a life raft, of, a, um, of, of someone to save me, and climbed back aboard the, the boat, which, you know, to, to, to uh, completely torture this analogy, which was my family and friends that had been there all along. But the real hard work, and not just for the addict, but even more for the person that's caring for them, you know. I know why there are 30-day programs, which I think have, uh, have diminishing returns if you go back to them seventh and eighth time like I have. Mm-hmm. But the first time, it was really important because you had to have somebody there that was willing for 24-7 to make certain that you were going to give in to your addictive um, urges and, you know, go find that drink, go find that drug. She took my keys. She took my wallet. She took my pants. Um, you know, I don't even think there was a pair of socks in the in the apartment that I detoxed in. I could not have gone anywhere. I couldn't have bought anything. I, she erased all the numbers from my phone, except that they had the last name Biden. And that was, uh, you know, a full-time job. And, uh, and I'm forever grateful that she was uh, willing to do that hard work. You write with such compassion about your fellow addicts you know, who are out there. And I just wondered, and you kind of touched on it in the book, because I personally think we criminalise people in immense pain. How would you like to see addicts treated in 10 years' time? Like, what changes would you like to see happen? I don't know if that's too far-ranging a question. No, not at all. I think that um, my hope is that uh, we begin to look at addiction not as a, um, a criminal justice issue, 
and begin to look at addiction primarily as a mental health issue mm -hmm. and having mental health parity with the rest of the health system, meaning that people that suffer from diseases of the, of the brain, that they're treated from, uh, from a healthcare perspective rather than what 95%, 99% of people, the way that they're treated now. They're mm. thrown into the criminal justice system, and often uh, than not, nine times out of the ten, their addiction or the underlying issues, the trauma that's related to their addiction, are never even addressed. I don't know what I'm sure you have. is a Dr. Gabor Mate. <gasps> um, I yeah. just read it in the realm uh, yeah. of Hungry Ghosts. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, Wow. I think that he speaks more eloquently and with greater depth of knowledge of not just the science, but the uh, the emotional toll of addiction and, and the causes for it in a way that spoke to me like no one else has. And I would encourage anyone to go online and just watch his TED Talk. Mm. It, uh, I think there are answers, but we have to start the conversation before we get to the answers. And one of the things that I hope my book does is hopefully people will read it and Number one, walk away with, um, if in their own lives, the people that they love that have suffered from addiction is not feel that same stigma that they can't talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, there's no way that we can solve the problem. Mm. And we can't get people better from it. No. That's the, that's the truth. I, I think it? about it from, uh, you know, Cindy McCain, John McCain's wife, just uh, doing interviews. And she, I think she's written a book and she talks about her addiction to opioids and um and I, I just saw it and I was appreciative of her defending me from kind of the criticisms based around my addiction. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Patty Davis wrote this beautiful op-ed about how she suffered from addiction while her father, Ronald Reagan, was governor and then president and never was able to tell anybody, never able to speak about it to anybody. It was something that was kind of swept under the rug. And I think that once we bring it into the open, um, and we start to talk about it, like the way that we talk and care about the people that we know and love that suffer from addiction, then we may be able to start to, to uh, come up with some answers. There is no silver bullet, but I'm certainly that there's got to be a better way than how we're dealing with it now. Hmm. I wanted to ask you if there's anyone listening who, because you, your journey to sobriety has been one of lots of relapses, mm -hmm. but you keep, you know, in 12-step programs we talk about um, keep coming back, you know, keep coming back, even when you're relapsing. And I wondered if there was anyone listening who can't get, they just can't get clean and sober. They're really struggling. What your advice to them would be, what your message to them would be. Just keep trying. The fact of the matter is, is that I could have written a book and I could have talked about how I got sober in 2003, how I relapsed several years later. I think it was 2000. Uh, 10 and then you know and then got clean and sober again what i really wanted to make clear was that between 2010 my first relapse and my clean date um, almost two years ago i tried everything i would get four months i would get six months i would get a year sometimes or close to a year i would get three weeks and you know and i kept going back i literally did everything from ibogaine therapy and uh to ketamine infusion therapy for a, a long stretch there in between the longest period of my sobriety. I was a, you know, six day a week practice of Ashtanga yoga, which really was, 
I loved. I mean, it was, and I have to get back to it. The pandemic has not been good to my waistline. <laughs> but um, stay close to people as much as you possibly can. And don't do what I tried to do. Please don't disappear. I do know how incredibly lucky I am. And I, I credit it to the guardian angels that I believe that I have in my life. And, and uh, my brother, my mom, my sister. That just um, weren't ready to uh, to give up on me, and all of the people that are here that I know are my guardian angels because I get to see and talk to them every day. And do you feel that your mom and your sister and your brother are with you? I I do. I I don't. I I know that they are. I know that they are. And the, the beautiful thing about um, waking up and. Uh, being able to go down at 6 a.m., hopefully at least 6 a.m., uh, to my baby Bo, um, who I named after my brother, who's a year old, just 13 months old, and be able to uh, sit him next to me at my little table, which I um, uh, make my paintings in the morning while he eats blueberries. And I just look and I think that I know that um, they're all in those eyes that look back at me. I'm positive about that. It's so beautiful. I want to ask you one final question, sure. which is, can you tell me about the Biden family motto? Yeah. If you have to ask, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the greatest example of that in my family is my Uncle Jimmy. My uncle is uh, my best friend and, and uh, both my, my aunt, and, uh, just huge parts of my life. And I'm so lucky for that. But what it means is this, is that when someone's really in trouble and someone is really in need of help, most of the time, at least in my experience, I think people should think about their own experience. It's really hard for them to ask for help and rarely do they when they're really in a place that they feel completely lost and helpless. It's sometimes almost impossible for them to imagine reaching out for help. Those are the times in which uh, I hope that I can be the example that my uncle and, uh, and uh, everyone in my family has been with me, is they never stopped coming to me. They never stopped trying to find me when I disappeared. They never, ever, ever let me disappear into that bleak, dark space that I so desperately thought was my answer. That's so powerful. Like, I feel sorry. Thank you. Um, it's beautiful. Thank you. I mean, it's this book is special. It meant a lot to to this recovering addict, and you know, there's something in here whether you have experienced addiction or not. It's it's um, you're really incredibly inspiring, and your resilience is just it's a wonderful, beautiful thing to 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 see. And um, I know we've only just met, but I feel proud of you. Yeah. Your dad must be like. I, you know, that, that presidency is being fired by pride, <laughs> yeah. fired by pride for you, yeah. Hunter. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, what, a, what a beautiful thing to say to me. Thank you so much. This has been, uh, I, I could do this every day with you. I mean, you make my day. <laughs> Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners and I love hearing from you. 
The Telegraph also let me loose in column form. So if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300-123-3393. That's 0300-123-3393. They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone.